0: The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, is it because we didn't bring any bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. COVID-19 has affected the church.
1: It's not all doom and gloom, though. There's been lots of good opportunities by many churches going online. There's a reality of digital poverty. Some churches, some people can't afford the internet. They can't afford broadband. Not every church has the skill sets and the people and the resources to enable online church to happen. But with all the challenges that closed doors and shut buildings and ministries postponed has brought, there's been many opportunities that COVID has brought to the church. But it does raise a big question. It raises many questions, but there's a really big question to COVID-19 when it comes to the church and to Christianity. When ministry stops, when doors are shut, when things have to be done in new ways, what is the foundation of the church when the layers have been stripped back like an onion when things that have always happened can't happen anymore at least temporarily what is the foundation of the church when you peel back the layers what's left what's at its core what's its foundation what's its identity i think the answer is in this passage look at uh, sentence 16 where Jesus' true identity has been revealed, a, a bit like a murder mystery that we had last night, when, when the mask is removed, when someone names Jesus, when someone gives this title, his name is his name is Peter, it's changed to Peter, what happens? Straight away, Jesus starts to talk about the church, sentence 18, as soon as Jesus' identity is made much of and as soon as his identity is revealed, Jesus immediately talks about the church. And so those two things must be linked together. The identity of Jesus, who do people say that I am? And the life giving reality of the church because of the gospel. And this is, there's a truism that you will never understand the identity of the church unless you understand the identity of Jesus. They're, they're intimately linked together, indelibly connected. Ephesians chapter 2 a letter that Paul wrote to the early church, he goes as far as to say the church is the manifestation of Jesus. When you look at the church, you understand Jesus, or you should do. When you hear the words from the lips of people at church, you should hear the good news of the gospel about Jesus. But that raises some more questions for me. I mean why is it for many people they say I like Jesus but I can't stand the church I like Jesus and and I like what he says but the church well that's another story people are interested in Jesus and his claims but they don't like the church but for other people it it just flips and maybe they say something like uh, my issue is with Jesus I mean his teachings are just too restrictive and constrictive Jesus it's all about power and And actually, it's just too much for me. I I enjoy my freedom. I, I like the idea of Jesus, but his teachings are just too much for me. And for both of those groups of people, whether you're a Christian and you struggle with Christians and not Jesus, or whether you're someone who's looking in and you're interested in what Jesus has to say, but you fear it's going to be far too constrictive for you. We need to answer the same question that Simon Peter has. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the question that Jesus asks in verse 15. Sentence 15, if you've got your Bible open, please look at it. Sentence 15, Jesus asks a question. Sentence 16, Jesus affirms an answer. Sentence 18, looks at the future that Jesus promises. Those are the three parts that we're going to look at this morning, centering around the identity of Jesus and therefore the identity of the church. That's the question Jesus asked. That's the first thing I want us to think about. This, this question that's quite well known. Verse 15, who do you say that I am? That's our first point, the question Jesus asked. Now, when Dave began reading from verses 1 to 4 of chapter 16, the, the, uh, the question that Jesus is being asked is for, is for power. Jesus, show us your muscles. Show us some pyrotechnics Joe show us Jesus show us your glory in a kind of a powerful way that we control because we want to know not who you are but we want to be entertained it's the religious leaders and the Pharisees that asked Jesus that question in verses one to four of chapter 16 but by the time we shift to what's next verses five to seven it's the it's the attention now and the it's the attention and the focus is now on the disciples the disciples say, uh, well, Jesus, you're trying to teach us about the yeast of the Pharisees. And we are quite like a cooking lesson. Verse seven tells us that they've missed the point. It's not about Delia Smith. It's not about the hairy bikers. It's about Jesus warning his disciples, not about yeast in a physical sense of baking, but about the yeast of the Pharisees. And it's not until verse 12, sentence 12, that the disciples begin to understand that Jesus is warning them not about cooking, Jesus is warning them about the pride of the Pharisees. I'm not interested in cooking, says Jesus here. I'm not interested in showing my power, verses 1 to 4. Disciples, what you need to understand is that the Pharisees are full of pride, and so can you be, and so can I be. And in spite of all that, Matthew, the teacher, records for us, verse 13, this conversation. It's a conversation that is recorded for us, not because Jesus doesn't know who he is, He hasn't got amnesia. He hasn't forgotten his identity. No, this conversation, this dialogue, it's recorded for you and me. It's it's recorded for the church throughout the centuries. And did you notice the, uh, like a photographer's lens, the focus is sharpening, the, the gaze is narrowing. Verse 13, who do people say that I am? Verse 15, who do you say that I am? I mean, this is the reality. If you don't listen to God through his word, you'll never understand who Jesus is. I mean, hearsay, listening to what other people say, listening and hearing other people's responses and experiences of the church and of who Jesus is, that may have some merit. But to really understand who Jesus is, we need to listen to God's voice through God's word. We don't need to say, do you think Jesus is we need to say God please show yourself to me and God has done that graciously through his son through the pages of the Bible but look at what people said when the question came who do people say that I am verse 14 is the answer some people say you're like the prophets some people say you're like John the Baptist Jesus you're like that person a prophet of old who God's word has come to and you're speaking to a culture who've lost their religious bearings. The culture's lost its moral centre. Jesus, you're like John the Baptist, you're like Elijah, you're like Jeremiah. I mean, Elijah, if you go back to uh, 1 Kings 18 and 19, it's this great moment in Elijah's ministry, where he calls down fire from heaven. He, Elijah's a fire and brimstone guy. He's a preacher he, of old school characteristics. And, and so they're saying that's who Elijah was. And so Jesus, he, he's a fire and brimstone guy. He, he's a prophet who brings down the judgment of God against all those people who oppose God's rule. That's who Jesus is. Who do people say that I am? Oh, and other people, they say you're like Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah, this prophet of old, he said there are two ways to live. There are two paths you can follow. There's two systems you can drink from, Jeremiah chapter 2. You can follow God or you can die without him. Those are the two options. And Jesus' message, from what I've heard, says says Simon Peter, some people say you're like that. Some people say that you're just polarizing in your message. Some people say you're so exclusive in what you've got to say. And if Jesus is like that, then the church is like that as well. The church is full of the good people who look down on the bad people. The church is full of superior people who look down on lowly people. And if you think that, and if the people thought that, the question that comes is so important. Simon Peter, it doesn't matter who the other people think I am. What really matters to me is what you say, verse 15. Who do you say that I am? Because the whole of the conversation, verse 13, happened up north. It happened in Caesarea Philippi. It's a little geographical marker. Jesus hasn't got lost. He's deliberately travelled up north. He's looking at the, the highest point of his ministry, the most northerly point of his journey. He's looking out, as it were, across the nations not just God's people in Israel he's looking at the nations and he's saying this as we work through the passage where the Pharisees and the religious teachers where they want the keys to the kingdom to to lock the doors and let in people who are good and respectable and honest and right I want people to come to me from every nation of the world look at the nations that I can see people from every tribe tongue and nation will come to me because it's not based on goodness It's not based on intellect. It's not based on who your family you come from. It's not based on your nationality. It's It's based on revelation. It's based on grace. It's based on people being shown the reality of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I want people from the whole world to come into church. I've got the keys to the kingdom and I want to open wide the doors for people from every tribe, tongue and nation. Jesus is not a moralistic preacher, he's not someone of fire and brimstone, and neither is he someone exclusively of compassion and tolerance. We live in such a stratified society, such a divided society, so increasingly tribal. We want to put Jesus in a box and he says no. I'm a preacher of truth, and I'm a preacher of compassion and love. I'm a preacher of the justice of God, and I'm a preacher of mercy and grace. Jesus is not a man like me, He doesn't have a core. He's a man of stability. He knows what he believes, and he proclaims God's truth to the world. So who do you say that Jesus is? We can't put him in a box. The Jesus of the Bible is not one of our own imagination. It's not one of our own limitation, our own constrictions and preferences. And it's the call to the church to modify and understand the Jesus of nuance. He's not right wing or left wing. He's not labor or conservative. Jesus brings the reality of the justice of God and the mercy of God together. The humanity of God and the divinity of God walking the streets of Caesarea Philippi. And the church needs to embody that. We need to embody that in Epsom. We can't be a church that just shows compassion compassion and mumbles on truth. We can't be a church that is strong on doctrine and not on care. We need to bring both together. I mean, you could have someone who says, oh yeah, I know Nigel. He he loves sushi and he loves Everton Football Club and he loves country music. Now I don't particularly dislike any one of those things, but I like my fish cooked. I love what's red in Liverpool and not what's blue so much. And I don't mind country music. But you'll never know me unless I tell you who I am. And we'll never know who God is unless he reveals himself to us. I mean, the newspapers give us a caricature of Jesus. Twitter gives us a modern Jesus with no hard edges. It doesn't matter who you say Jesus is. It matters very much who God has revealed his son to be. That's no better than the classic quote from C.S. Lewis. Here it is. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. I mean, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who do you say Jesus is? Because that will affect your view of him and your view of church. It's the question Jesus asked and here's the answer Jesus affirmed. Point number two, the answer Jesus affirmed. Look at sentence 16 with me. Simon Peter answers, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Simon Peter gives Jesus a title. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited, anointed son of God. You're the king who's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. And I wonder if at this point, being respectful Jesus may have rubbed his hands and says now I've got something to work with I mean finally someone knows who I am I mean here's the foundation that I can build the church upon and that's just what he does but it's very important to see Peter is not the rock I mean there's been lots of confusion about this through the years but I think it's clear that Jesus is saying Peter you as a person are not the rock so what's the rock And where are the boundaries these sentences tell us about that? If the rock is not a person, what is it? I think Jesus is saying that the rock is the revelation that God has given to Peter about his son, Jesus Christ. The the rock is the gospel. The rock is the testimony about the person of Jesus Christ that God gives by his Holy Spirit into the mind and heart of Simon Peter. There's no other way that you can see Jesus for who he is unless God reveals to you who his son is by the power of his spirit. We're spiritually blind. We can't see who God is. We can't hear his words because we're spiritually deaf and our hearts are so hard. And so it's about revelation, not intellect, not discovery in India or on a spiritual journey. It's about inspiration and revelation as God reveals to you. Simon Peter the identity of his son that's why Peter's testimony is the rock he's the first person who identifies who Jesus is accurately you're the Christ you're the son of the living God no one no one has said those words before in the gospel and so Peter is the steward of the message along with the Apostles it's Peter who as the church grows in the book of Acts it's the Apostles all who have the same authority Matthew 18 tells us that. And each apostle has the keys of the kingdom. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is talking about boundaries. He's talking about the authority that apostles have to to bind and loosen. And you see that all through the Acts of the Apostles. You see, there's more here than meets the eye. Jesus is not just talking about earthly, he's talking about spiritual as well. He's not just talking about flesh and blood, he's talking about heavenly mindedness. That's what you come into contact with when you come to church, whether that's virtually or audibly through a tape or a DVD, remember those? Or a radio or when, or when you meet together with a church family physically. The church is a remarkable group of ordinary people that have been transformed spiritually by the power of God as his word is taught. That The Holy Spirit goes to work on a human heart and a stony heart is replaced by a soft heart that responds to God's word. A spiritual sight is given, scales are removed, we have a new lens on our eyes, we can see and are sensitive to new heavenly realities, we, we can hear God's word. And we know that it's true. And for that to happen, you you need to know your your role in the church as Jesus opened up your eyes and as he unstops your ears. And this passage tells us two things about our role in the church. And what it means to be a Christian. It's it's always a truth that's received. Look at sentence 17. Peter wasn't a great intellect. He was a hardworking fisherman. But Simon Peter, verse 17, it says, you did not... Come up with this yourself. What does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Becoming a Christian, becoming a member of a local church is not about how clever you are. It's not about which school you went to or if you went to university or not. Becoming a Christian is a gift that's received. And Simon Peter receives this revelation of who God was. Not because he went to a certain class or he went to a certain place or he had a certain intellect. It was received as God opened up his eyes. It's not about how, uh, how good we are. It's not about how clever we are. Because if you're like me, we so soon forget the reality of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And that's why, especially now when we're worshipping remotely, I need you and maybe you need me too. In his great little book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this German pastor that we quote quite often, he said, we need each other because the Jesus in my heart is weaker than the Jesus in the word of yours. In other words, when I forget the gospel, I won't remember it myself. I need you to Skype me, to Zoom me, to text me, to call me, to come stand two meters apart from me and say, how are you? And can I remind you of the gospel? I need you to encourage me. I need you to rebuke me. I need you to challenge me. I need you to spur me on. And we need that. As we see each other in our little boxes on the computer screen, we need to get in contact. Because the Jesus in my heart is weaker than the Jesus in the word of yours. When you're stronger, I need you to lead me and encourage me and pick me up. And i try and do that for you too. It's a, it's a message received, but it's also a call to follow. Do you see that in sentence 17? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you but by man, but by my father in heaven. And then sentence 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. Now that you've received the gift, now that you're part of the church, I'm going to change your name. Now, it's been a long time since I had an interview. But just imagine you went for a job interview with me and uh, you're a fly on the wall and The interview goes well, and I'm called back in, having shown my qualifications and answered the questions the best I can. And as I'm called back in, they offer me the job, and they say, well, there's one condition. We're not gonna call you Nigel anymore, we're gonna call you Barry. If you want to take this job, we're gonna call you Barry from now on, and we want access to your finances, we wanna see your search history on your computer, we want to have access to your emails, we want to know where you're going. We want to know every part of your life. Would run a mile. You couldn't beat me out the door. This is a controlling, manipulative environment. There's no way I'm going to work for this this person, this organization. But look at what Jesus says. Let's think about why he says it. Because Jesus does something very similar here. I tell you that you are Peter. Hang on, I thought your name was Simon Peter. And in this instant, Jesus changes his name. It's so significant. It's like when you have a baby, you can see on the screen, there's a picture <laughs> of a scan. When you uh, have a baby, so I'm told, four times, you see an image on the screen, and to be honest, they don't look much. a collection of cells that's knitted together, they're wonderfully formed, but they look kind of like an alien. I've seen four aliens, they've turned out okay. But when they're in the womb, they look like an alien. The cells are splitting and forming, and God's knitting together the child in a womb. It's incredible. It's remarkable. But stage one is when you meet the alien on the scan and then stage two, you've got to think about a name and then you meet the person. You may choose to find out if they're a boy or a girl, but then the person comes out and you meet them and you've got to name them. There's something very intimate about naming because something strange happens that the baby, as they grow, they kind of embody and uh, incarnate the name that you've given to them. They're not just a collection of cells anymore. They are the person whose name you've given to them. They're part of the family. Their their name and their identity are intimately linked together in a very strange, mysterious way. And it's the same thing when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, when you're baptised into the church family in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that the rest of your identity is gone. It doesn't mean that you're a cyborg but it means your primary identity has been shifted away from yourself to who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't like it. We resist it a bit like Peter does. Do you notice what happened next in sentence 21? After this name change, Jesus starts to talk about his death. I'm going to Jerusalem. I need to suffer. And Peter uh, takes Jesus to one side and has a word in his ear. He he rebukes Jesus. And then very quickly, Jesus rebukes Peter. You're thinking about flesh and blood. I'm thinking about spiritual horizons and spiritual priorities. Peter, you've gone back to thinking in your Simonness. You're thinking as the world does. You, you want me to go to Jerusalem and fight with power and might. But this is how you're to live, verse 24. Peter, you need to come in your Peterness, not in your Simonness, in your new identity, not in your worldliness, in your spiritual nature, not in your flesh and bloodness. In sentence 24, you need to come to Jerusalem. You need to take up your cross and you need to follow me. If you want to find your life, you need to lose it. Becoming a Christian always has two parts to it it's receiving a gift and it's following a call. But we find that hard. There's a wonderful, uh, honest statement that you'll see on the screen now from Thomas Nagel. He's a philosophy professor. He's an atheist. And he says this. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right. It's that I hope that there is no God because I don't want there to be a God. Do you see what he says in great honesty? He's saying, I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. I don't want there to be a God. Not just so I'm true intellectually, but in my heart and actions, I don't want to be challenged and I don't want to change. I don't want God to call me to account. I want to live my life and just do it. Because if Jesus is everything he says he is, I'd have to live my life differently. I'd have to obey the call. And that's what Peter was struggling with. And if you're like me i'm tempted to go back to my old life i'm tempted to go back to my Simonness, my pre-call life living for myself making up my own rules living for my own priorities but jesus says if you're going to be a christian you need to obey the call you need to follow my lead you need to follow my word but how's that going to work well you need to shift your focus from the present to the promised future that's where peter goes point number three in verse 18 verse 18 jesus replied blessed are you simon son of jonah for this was not revealed to you by man but by my father in heaven this is a spiritual gift and i tell you that you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hades will not overcome it now this is a promise jesus is making based on the church the church is going to overcome hades and you're saying what's all that about well in the ancient near east hades was a a description of the realm of the dead it was a description of how a description of everything that's anti-god and so by contrast if hades was a picture of darkness and hatred and lowliness and unkindness and mean-spiritedness Heaven's just the the opposite. It's just the reverse. It's the kingdom of light and love and justice and goodness because God is there. But how is that going to be possible when actually we deserve death itself? In John 10, Jesus was speaking about the life-giving reality of his life and of his death. He describes in an agrarian culture what it was like to have sheep and shepherds and gates and walls and Wolves and wolves attacking sheep and hide hands, not loving their sheep well and shepherds not shepherding well. And he describes himself as the gate. Jesus says, I'm the gate where the thief comes in to steal and kill and destroy. I'm the gate that my sheep might have life and have it to the full. I'm going to give you the life you long for. And you think, well, how is he going to do that? I'm going to protect you from all harm, says Jesus, the shepherd, the gate. I'm not going to let the realm of the dead come in and shadow over you. I'm not going to let it harm you or hurt you. In fact, life is going to be the best that you can imagine. I'm going to lay before you pleasant green pastures forever. I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says in John chapter 10, and I'll lay down my life for my sheep. The only way you can have life to the full, says Jesus, Is for the eternal son of God himself. If he is willingly to be overcome by the realm of the dead for you, that's the only way it will happen. And Jesus says that in John 10, I'm the gate, but I'm also the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd who will go all the way into the gates of hell so that you will never be touched by the power of death. I'm going to be ripped apart by those that should be loving me. The religious leaders, the Pharisees who know the Bible, so well but they can't see me in every page and every sentence but i'm not just talking about a metaphor john 10 of someone willing to do this someone who might do this someone that you can dream about and be inspired by i'm actually going to do it myself says jesus so the metaphor in john 10 becomes reality on the cross of jesus i'm going to let my flesh and my blood be destroyed so that you can live forever and that's just what happened at the hands of those who should have been protecting him and encouraging him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who are the ones who clapped and bade for his blood. In Jesus, you have the justice of God and the mercy of God on the cross of Christ, satisfied and revealed perfectly. There's life. There's life promised in the future this life eternal this life the way it was meant to be and once again will be because jesus went into the gates of hell for you and for me so what's our response well do you remember those days when we could go out one of my favorite past times it probably reveals some scottish blood in me sorry dave it reveals some scottish blood in me is to go around the taste testing you know taste testing you can go and get a little thimble of wine or part. Bit of cheese or some crackers that you can dip into some garlic sauce and smell for the whole rest of the afternoon. I want to use that picture to close with. That's the role and response of every Christian who knows Jesus personally and intimately. You might get a small taster of that reality, but it's a taster nonetheless. It's you don't have to uh, buy the real thing, but in Jesus, you don't just get the taste; you get the real thing. You get the son of God living for you and dying for you and raised for you and now present in you by His spirit. And the church is called to offer that foretaste to our friends and our neighbors on Zoom, on WhatsApp or in person wisely. It's the foretaste of the new creation that we long for. And that's what we're called to introduce our friends to, not to the church, but to Jesus And as we ask the question, who do you say that Jesus is to the degree they understand the identity of Jesus to that same degree will they love the church, the bride of Christ for which he died.